we've asked Professor Barney Glover from Western Sydney University, Vice-Chancellor, um, to this forum. Barney, thanks for accepting our invitation. I know you had a rocky day yesterday, so we're, we are absolutely delighted that you're joining us today. And we've asked Barney to share some of his views as, as the Chair of the Vice-Chancellor's Group, or President, what do we call you? Chair, thank you, uh, to share some of his views in relationship to TMAG, direction, implementation, future challenges. Uh, and of course, uh, these are Barney's thoughts and experience uh, uh, about the implementation of TMAG across the universities. And I'm sure that uh, his track record in, in, in the university sector uh, is testament to the uh, authenticity and the, uh, the rigour of his comments, and we look forward, Barney, very much to your thoughts today. So would you please join with me in welcoming Barney Glover, Professor Barney Glover, to the podium. Uh, of course, I was a school teacher for many years in uh, country Victoria, so I have a deep uh, connection to education, and uh, mathematics education in particular, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the uh, years I spent in Cobram and Horsham in Victoria, teaching in the Victorian Education Department, having been a bonded studentship holder for those who might remember such things in the 1970s. And after leaving Melbourne Uni, spent uh, a number of great years uh, teaching in what I believe is a fabulous profession, and it's one that's under pressure. So uh, I want to uh, express my thanks to the Australian Council of Deans of Education, uh, and Tanya in particular, for the invitation to uh, speak to you today. I'm very keen to acknowledge that the Council performs an integral role in nurturing a strong teaching profession in Australia and ensuring that our graduates are of the highest quality. And this is certainly not a job that's easy and arguably teacher education and quality has been one of, if not the most heavily scrutinised area of university education in recent years. And from some of the conversations I've had on both sides of the political divide since the federal election, that's not going to change in the near term. It's going to remain a very important part of our uh, deliberations and our policy discussions in the sector. And to reassure you, Vice-Chancellors are deeply concerned uh, about uh, the commentary around teacher education. And I know from the New South Wales Vice-Chancellors Committee perspective, it's just one example of that. If we look back over the last two or three years, Adrian Pickley, our local minister, has been a very vocal minister in relation to teacher ed and, and uh, other things in education, and the New South Wales VCC group has spent considerable time at each of our meetings over the last three years in discussing aspects of uh, teacher education. So it remains high on the agenda for uh, vice-chancellors. Teaching quality, of course, is often linked to student performance in national and international assessments, such as the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, that you'll well aware of, and of course the National Assessment Program for Literacy and Numeracy, NAPLAN, with the profession criticised by government and commentators for failing to produce strong results. For example, in 2012, Australia's ranking across all three PISA measures dropped from the previous assessment in 2009 and substantially since the first assessment in 2000. Nationally, the latest NAPLAN test results released in August this year show a flatlining in performance, with no significant gains across most subject areas. The results show Australian students are making little progress in literacy and numeracy, with national average performance 
scores in grades three, five, seven and nine not having shifted since the standardised test began almost a decade ago. Notwithstanding the complexity and the caveats associated with NAPLAN and PISA, the most simplistic interpretations of these uh, data sets are made and we find ourselves flooded with media headlines that condemn universities for producing substandard teaching graduates who leave university and enter classrooms unprepared. Just to quote some of those. New PISA results show education decline. It's time to stop the slide, the conversation. Measured against the world, Australian student school results are mostly bad, the Finn Review. Poor teachers, poor results, the Australian. New South Wales government targets poor teachers in education reform, ABC News Online. Poor teacher quality and the rise of educational failure, the drum. And teachers failing our students and our nation from the age just a few months ago. Our universities are condemned for the standard of our teacher training, for the entry requirements upon which we permit students into teaching and for the number of teaching graduates we produce. We're chastised that our teaching degrees are theory-laden and fail to prepare graduates for the classroom. We are repeatedly told that ATAR and entry requirements for teacher education are too low and that our students would do better if the ATARs of teachers on entry were higher. We're also criticised on supply side that we're allowing large numbers of students to enter higher education with relatively low ATARs leading to an oversupply of teaching graduates. Concern over teacher quality and supply are anything but new and generally lead to the same outcome. Government intervention through new policies targeted combating our supposedly failing education system. Unfortunately for teacher education, we are subject to criticism and control at both state and uh, territory levels as well as, of course, by the Commonwealth. In the past few years alone, there have been a number of renewed policy attempts by governments to save and restore the credibility of Australia's teaching profession. To go back over a few, on the 6th of March 2013, the New South Wales Education Minister, Andrea, Adrian Pickley, that I mentioned earlier, released the New South Wales Government's Great Teaching Inspired Learning, a blueprint for action which included 47 actions for improving teacher quality and student learning outcomes in New South Wales schools, something that's occupied the attention of New South Wales VCs almost continuously since that time. The following week, on the 11th of March 2013, the then Minister for Education, Early Childhood and Youth, Peter Garrett, and the Minister for Tertiary Education, Skills, Science and Research at the time, Chris Bowen, announced plans for higher standards for teacher training courses as part of the ongoing National Plan for School Improvement. More recently, the Federal Coalition Government followed, followed with its own action on teacher education by establishing the Teacher Education Ministerial Advisory Group, TMAG, to provide further advice on how teacher education programs could be improved. The group's report, Action Now, Classroom Ready Teachers Report, includes 38 recommendations proposing reform across five central themes, including quality assurance of teacher education courses, entry criteria, assessment of graduates to ensure classroom readiness, changes to practical experience for teacher education students, and a focus on national research and workforce planning capability. 
Australia's Education Council has agreed to adopt a number of the report's recommendations, including national implementation of a test, of course, Landtight, the National Literacy and Numeracy Test, to ensure students completing their initial teacher education courses are in the top 30% of our country in personal numeracy and literacy capability. Enhanced and more transparent selection criteria for prospective students of teacher education programs. Re-accrediting existing teacher education courses according to criteria that will ensure graduating students are classroom ready. Shortly after the release, of course, of the TMAG report, the federal government announced that it would provide almost 17 million over four years to AITSL to help uh, implement the recommendations of the TMAG report, including the implementation of a national numeracy and literacy test. So what can we make of these reports and are their approaches and recommendations productive? These policies have put the spotlight on the quality and the curriculum of teacher education courses. Australian universities recognise that teacher quality needs to improve. However, our accountability is not unlimited and conversations and policies aimed at addressing teacher education need to reflect the complexity of the profession and its circumstances. Too often, the general public are incensed by sensationalist headlines that unfairly malign teacher quality while the complexity and challenges of the teaching profession are not taken into account. For example, let's begin with the narrow focus that is placed on ATARs. Critics who advocate higher ATARs for teaching and who quickly and easily associate lower entry requirements as an indicator of declining teacher, teacher quality are simplistic in their views and interpretation. Commentators who focus on ATAR ignore the fact that input measures correlate more with socioeconomic background and are very poor predictors of graduate success and teacher quality. A narrow focus on minimum ATARs would disproportionately affect students from a range of disadvantaged backgrounds, including those from low SES families and in particular students of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent. Higher entry scores would create barriers to entry to teaching, significantly curtailing opportunities for students who would otherwise make great teachers. Rather than focusing on how students gain entry into a course, of course assessment of graduate teacher quality should focus on the abilities of students as they complete their university education. Furthermore, ATARs are becoming less relevant in an environment where universities are increasingly accepting larger numbers of students outside of the school leaver stream. Government policies need to recognise that there are multiple pathways into teacher education. And the Higher Education Standards Panel report on admissions and transparency is with the Minister at the moment. And I anticipate he will be releasing it with his own uh, commentary in the near future. For those of us who have some insights into that report, I think we look forward to it. Uh, and the comments that it will make about uh, entry standards, about transparency. But one of the interesting um, aspects of that report, as I understand it, in the commentary around the, res uh, the recommendations, of course, is just how influential ATARs are or aren't in admission to Australian universities. And we already have a number of universities in the sector that have made it clear that they are moving away completely from using ATARs as the basis of entry and others, of course, who wish to use it uh, significantly. We are seeing 
a significant shift in admission arrangements into our universities, which will make some of the comparability and consistency recommendations harder to implement from the HESP report. Criticisms around ATARs are not only critical of a student's ability to succeed, but also undermine the functions of universities. As autonomous, self-accrediting institutions, universities have considerable skill and experience in selecting students on the basis of their capacity to pursue their chosen discipline. And for those of you that might have read Keep It Clever, the UA policy statement that we released uh, in 2015 in the uh, lead-up to the federal election uh, this year, but that policy statement and the National Press Club address I gave in launching it highlighted a number of important principles that we believe underpin universities in this country. And one of those principles, of course, is importantly autonomy. And uh, when we begin to have a discussion nationally around uh, uh, governments uh, considering the introduction of uh, arrangements that would directly impact on our ability to select the students uh, into our programs, then that question of autonomy is at risk. So there is a very important principle. What is of concern to the sector is the possibility, of course, that the TMAG recommendations will potentially result in the opposite of what is actually being sought, especially given, given emerging trends which show teacher shortages in maths and science and an overall decline in teacher applications and offerings at the moment. And you in this room uh, are more equipped to comment on that than I am directly, but certainly the data is troubling. So what's the role of government? If teacher education is to improve to the levels desired by government, we require a collaborative effort by both universities and governments. And as noted by my colleague, Professor Greg Craven, in a National Press Club address, there is a tendency to lay sole blame on universities for university education and teacher quality. As Greg also points out, the obvious difficulty with this is that many of these attacks are led by state governments who are ultimately responsible for the teaching profession, who run the schools substantially, who set the standards for teachers, who employ teachers, determine their rates of pay, prove work practices, arrange promotions and should manage professional development. Let's begin with the critical issue of teacher remuneration. In the absence of higher salaries, the high ATAR students that government wish to attract in numbers and scale will not gravitate towards teaching when there are opportunities to pursue study in disciplines that lead to higher paying careers. Then there's the matter of support beyond graduation. While initial teacher education is effective, it's not sufficient on its own. Resources are needed to support newly qualified teachers, not only during their induction year, but throughout their careers. Governments also need to play their part in ensuring permanent job opportunities are available to graduates. While governments are quick to suggest an oversupply of graduates to available teaching places, we can't ignore the highly casualised nature of the teaching profession and the lack of permanent job opportunities they make available. What about the role of deans in all of this? While our sector has been heavily criticised on teacher education and training, there are areas where we can improve and become more engaged and where our education faculties need to demonstrate greater responsiveness. And in this, deans of education have a clear and critical responsibility to take the lead, particularly in two areas. Firstly, 
As teacher educators, education faculties have a responsibility towards preparing their graduates, in particular, for a STEM-focused, technologically-driven future, both for themselves, but also so that as teachers, they're able to prepare their students for the same future. And secondly, in redressing the current imbalance between teacher education and educational research within our faculties, through both an improvement in the quality of educational research and in translating research into outputs that matter for different audiences, not just the academy, the profession, the decision makers, the community. So teacher education and STEM for a moment. More Australian students now complete the high school certificate, or whatever it may be called in whatever jurisdiction, than ever before. Yet there are declines in STEM study in an era where these subjects will play an ever-increasing role in our lives and in the economy of our country. Prior to the, to the new high school certificate in 2001, more than 98% of high school graduates studied some sort of mathematics. However, by 2014, 9.7% of HSC students did no maths at all. During the same time period, the proportion of ATAR-eligible students undertaking no science study has stagnated, but at high levels, around 45%. So nearly one in two university students go science-free in that critical period. As a flow-on effect, Australia has a declining rate of STEM-related tertiary courses, course enrolments and completions, which have decreased from 22% to 16% in the past decade. These stats are alarming, particularly in the face of the new era of technology and innovation that we hear so much about from uh, our political leaders. Across the world, nations are competing for the high-growth firms and highly capable workers of the future and securing the pipelines in their education systems today. They know that children entering the education system in 2016 will be joining a very different workforce in 2030. They see the rising premium on skills in STEM. In these nations, STEM education counts. In 2015, the Office of the Chief Scientist reiterated the importance of STEM education for a prosperous, prosperous and competitive Australia, stating, a strong economy in the 21st century prospers through science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Criticism has been levelled at the national curriculum with students unable to recognise the value of STEM subjects in securing a career in the future economy. In an attempt to address this issue at primary and secondary school levels, the federal government is committed to a series of initiatives aimed at increasing the participation of all students and the wider community in science, technology, engineering and mathematics and improve their digital literacy. These included its Restoring the Focus on STEM in Schools initiative in 2014 and, of course, the National Innovation and Science Agenda, Agendas Inspiring All Australians in Digital Literacy and STEM Measure announced in December 2015. Universities and education faculties, however, also have an equal role to play both in addressing the decline in STEM literacy and in properly preparing pre-service teachers to teach STEM subjects. For example, only a minority of Australia's primary teachers have an educational background in a STEM discipline. In 2011, only 16% of Year 4 students were taught science by a teacher who majored or specialised in science. 
only 20% had a teacher who specialised in mathematics. However, the appointment of specialist teachers has been consistently shown to improve student outcomes. At a university level, collaboration between education and STEM faculties should become the norm, ensuring that pre-service teachers have access to both discipline and pedagogical expertise. I'll reflect a little on SMEC when it began, David, uh, with John DeLater, if I could reminisce for a moment, and why SMEC was embedded in an engineering and science faculty and not in an education faculty at the time, and it was uh, in the 1980s. The government has also recognised the need to engage teachers in curriculum transformation. The Australian Curriculum Digital Technologies module provides teachers with a revised curriculum that that prepares students for the challenges of the digital economy. Particular emphasis has also been given to retraining teachers. In 2017, the government will roll out a nationally available free online course with dedicated support and some start-up equipment for primary and early secondary teachers to help develop fundamental teaching skills and knowledge relating to the new, to the new digital technologies curriculum. I should acknowledge I'm on the Board of Education Services Australia. So I have a particular interest in the way uh, the curriculum online, curriculum materials and support to students is rolled out across this country. However, while these go some way towards addressing the challenges of preparing our students for a technology-driven, technologically-driven future, again, education faculties also have a crucial role to play in increasing the digital literacy of its pre-service teachers through interdisciplinary collaboration. Let me give you an example of how collaboration across disciplines might work towards enhancing professional practice. A 2014 survey of primary teachers undertaken by the Australian Science Teachers Association found that digital technology was a particular source of anxiety for many teachers, with many respondents unaware of the need to teach it or indeed to teach it well. Much professional development for teachers in relation to technology often privileges skill development how to use technology rather than integration of technology, how to teach with it. Collaboration between teacher educators and educational technology researchers would open up possibilities for a better understanding of the best and most effective ways for integrating technology into teaching and learning. For it's the way in which technology that is used is crucial, the way in which it is infused into the design of teaching spaces has as much value as its use to communicate content. The adoption of technological innovations and improvements in teaching and learning at university level, for example, the flipped classroom or the incorporation of blended learning, has been in progress for some years now. More needs to be done to ensure that technology is integrated effectively at primary and secondary levels, properly preparing both pre-service teachers and those already in the profession will go a long way towards ensuring this. I've recently, I, I don't get an opportunity to teach a great deal anymore. Some of you might say that that's true of many vice-chancellors. However, I do uh, teach into a graduate certificate program in uh, maths education at uh, Western Sydney. Uh, I do a couple of lectures a year uh, with Catherine Attard. Uh, primarily because it's an online course and I'm very interested in the experience of the real experience of teaching online. But I recently had uh, occasion to deliver a lecture to a group of students online in that course about technology. Uh, 
in mathematics education. And uh, during the course of that conversation, uh, I asked the, uh, the 20 or so students who were online uh, a little about the technologies they were using in the classroom, how they were using those technologies, and what difference they made. I was surprised at the scale and the scope and the extent to which technology be, was being used, but I came away deeply concerned about the way it was being used. And I think we have much more to do in this space as teacher educators. The current emphasis on teacher education has resulted in a clear lack of attention to educational research in some areas within some of our faculties and its contribution to the profession. Deans of education have a responsibility to redress this imbalance and to reinvigorate a focus on educational research, which would help with reshaping current perceptions of education faculties as sites of conservatism to sites of excellence. This will require action on two fronts, like the interdisciplinary collaboration I advocated earlier between discipline and pedagogical, pedagogical experts. Educational researchers will need to collaborate across disciplinary boundaries. A further challenge that will need to be addressed will be around the issue of effective research translation and impact, with some consideration to be given to the place of research in the teacher education and the profession more broadly. The parlous state of educational research in Australia points to the fact neither of these are currently being addressed sufficiently. At first glance, the 2015 era outcomes suggested that there has been general improvement for education with the president of the Australian Association for Research and Education, Martin Mills, noting, and I quote, there is in the main a good news story here for educational research in that at the 13 two-digit code, no universities went down and approximately 50% improved. There was some minor movement down of the universities at the four-digit code in curriculum and pedagogy and special studies. However, in education systems, eight universities improved and in uh, 1302, which I believe is curriculum and pedagogy, nine improved and in 1303, 12 improved. Okay. Additionally, education accounted for approximately 5% of the research outputs submitted to ERA in 2015. The most common research output type was a journal article, 54%, though the proportions of book chapters and conference papers were also high, 22% and 20% respectively. Specialist studies in education, as a, as a classification, was the largest education sub-discipline in terms of volume of outputs, research income and staff FTE. There is, however, plenty of room for improvement. At the two-digit level, eight of 38 units and 20 of 93 units at the four-digit level were assessed as at above world standard. This suggests that there is still a significant tail rated at levels one and two at both the two-digit and four-digit level. That is a significant tail rating educational research in Australia as being below or well below world standard. There are a number of challenges facing educational research, both from the perspective of the academy and the profession. For instance, the publications often read by the profession are ones that are lowly ranked in exercises such as ERA. This raises questions about the ERA literacy across the academy. Faculty should be developing ways of being more strategic in how research outputs are managed. For example, what should be included 
in the herd sea collection and how to translate research into outputs that matter for different audiences, academic, policymaker and the profession. Recently, the Australian Association of Research and Education undertook consultations with senior policy officers in every state and territory of Australia to inform discussions around understanding impact. Key topics identified from these discussions included the following. Research findings and their translation for policy development and reform as an area of important discussion. Data literacy, data strategies, data analysis and how research data is used for better decision making. The promotion of research collaborations and partnerships with those in policy, industry, health, children and families and justice departments. Translation of research, uh, in, uh, sorry, universities and schools in, and including intergovernmental relations in that same category. Translation of research into policy and uptake in practice and recording and disseminating research findings including commissioned research, access to repositories of evaluations, research reports and outcomes of systematic trials. Additionally, the most recent draft report from the Productivity Commission on Education Data noted that, and I quote, greater effort needs to go into producing high quality and relevant research and in making the findings from that work available to decision makers, the type of research that delivers high quality evidence on what works best is rare, unquote, Productivity Commission. This type of comment points to the real challenge of building connection between research and policy and practical outcomes. It also places teachers and other education professionals as receivers of research. I would argue that the way to meet some of these challenges would be to think about developing a more evidence-led profession. Teachers and other education professionals who are engaged in research as knowledge creators and intellectual workers. This type of reformulation of the profession is not new. The Finnish model is often held up as the gold standard for education around the world. A key part of that model is teachers have a well-developed understanding of themselves as research-led practitioners. Under a revised suite of professional standards in Scotland, which came into effect in 2013, teachers are now required to engage with research and literature to challenge and inform professional practice. And educational leaders have to demonstrate, and I'm quoting here, that they can apply their enhanced knowledge and critical understanding of research and developments in educational policy to support school development, unquote. The development of a more research evidence-led profession will not only contribute to more reflective professional practice, but will also give, go some way towards helping counteract the negative messages of poorly trained teachers, irrelevant teaching methods and so on, that are so often directed at those in the profession and teaching educators. The burden of declining teacher quality in Australia should not be shouldered by one sector. We need a multifaceted approach to a complex issue that is both sympathetic to the nature of the teaching profession and what will be demanded of it in the future. And there will be much demanded of it in the future. It is in our nation's interest, and it's in fact in our nation's best interest, to have a shared discourse between government, universities and key representatives from the profession to better understand its challenges and to develop innovative solutions. We particularly at this time 
need a strong partnership, which Tanya alluded to, between the Council of Deans of Education and Universities Australia in the way in which we go about both reflecting on the challenges we face, but importantly in the way we go about advocating for education to our uh, political leaders in Canberra, to our state political leaders and importantly to the community. Thank you. I think I have time for questions. So if anyone has a question, I'd happily attempt to answer it. Or a comment? Or a well-directed assault on me from the floor? Thank you very much for your comments. And there's a lot there that I think everybody in the room um, supports. There is one issue with the focus on ERA, and as we move into preparing for ERA 2018, this is at the forefront of our thinking. And that is um, that in many universities, it may not always be um, made explicit um, that a very large contribution of outputs to the 1300 code actually come from all the other faculties in the universities rather than education. And it's universities, um, in my view, not giving sufficient attention to education across the university, which leads to a very large representation of rather low-quality conference papers and low-quality journal outputs coming from our colleagues in medicine, engineering, science, business, health, etc., etc. Um, and how, as the head of Universities Australia, can you, A, raise the awareness of the key stakeholders that education is much broader than just school education and B, what can you do about um, asking vice-chancellors to harness some of the very fine research done in schools and faculties of education to help raise the quality of the research across all universities? Thank you. I do acknowledge a couple of uh, key points in that. One, uh, I am and this is a comment that is not a UA comment at all. In fact, I'm pretty sure none of the comments I made were UA comments, Mike. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I am encouraged that as a sector we are beginning to realise as ERA develops that uh, we need to work within our organisations to improve the quality of our research outputs across the board. This is not a comment about educational research in particular, it's a comment generally. And I know within Western Sydney University, as much as we like to look at uh, uh, quantity measures uh, in relation to research performance, we are equally, uh, and in fact much more so, focused on how we improve the quality of what's coming through. Uh, and I think at the moment this is an incredibly important issue because we have a minister, uh, and I think in some public statements recently, he has been concerned about the amount of, as he's described it, poor quality research going on in Australia's universities and what needs to be done about it. Many of you in this room will have looked at the, uh, the uh, modelling for the changes to block grant distribution as a result of changes that emerged out of the Watt Review and NISA. And if you look at that, you'll see that about half the sector is losing block grant funding. It's being redistributed uh, on the basis of the type of research uh, going on within Australia's universities broadly. So I think there's a broader sectoral issue that university vice-chancellors are well aware of. Uh, whether we're doing enough about it at an institutional level or not, I think is, uh, uh, is questionable. I do appreciate the challenge you have in that those education publications come from across the organisation and the impact that can have 
on the way in which our education faculty research is described. So there is an important role for deans to play within your own institutions uh, to work with the DVC's research and vice-chancellors to address those sorts of issues. I don't think there's any doubt vice-chancellors are aware of this. Uh, the issue is how can we manage our organisations to address it. Um, but I still don't want to back away from the fact that there's a role for you to play in looking deeply into your faculties at the type of research that's underway. These, um, and, of course, my comments are general, not specific. There are great examples of collaboration going on in education faculties with STEM disciplines and with industry and business and so on. And we see, need to celebrate and identify, celebrate, reward those uh, research endeavours uh, much more, I think, to try and shift the pendulum a little bit on the research going on. You, you, you need to be very careful at the perception, even if it's an unfair one, that research going on within education faculties is fairly insular and siloed, and it is not sufficiently engaged beyond the discipline boundaries. And if you're not sufficiently engaged beyond the discipline boundaries, we are not preparing teaching uh, our teacher graduates and hence our primary and secondary school students to engage in what will be a very challenging labour market over the course of the next 20 years. Whether we like it or not, it is changing and it is going to change the nature of work dramatically. We need to accept that and we need to make sure... We can't predict it. We can't predict anything accurately for the next 20 years or so. But we need to make sure our teacher graduates are going into schools and able to help schools to develop young people for what is it going to be a very challenging labour market in the future. So the research that we need to be doing needs to inform the educational process and uh, the qualities of our, our graduates. So I still think, notwithstanding all of those challenges and whatever, there is an important role for deans to play in looking deeply at the way in which you promote and enhance research within education faculties. First, I want to acknowledge that I'm new to the country, so what I might say is uh, from a Canadian perspective. Uh, what I'm puzzled with in coming here is the curriculum that, that students have in the K-12 system and that they can actually graduate from high school without adequate levels in numeracy and literacy. That you can graduate from high school without taking math or sciences. So maybe part of the reform is not only in teacher preparation, but also in the curriculum for K-12. And maybe that's already addressed, but it seems to me that it's kind of late in the game for us to be addressing the shortcomings of the, last, the previous 12 years of education. Thank you. And I think it's a very good point in terms of the role that universities play to redress some of those imbalances. I don't think there's a doubt this conversation is going on at the moment. Uh, through a number of our peak bodies in this country, whether it's the Business Council of Australia or whether it's uh, uh, our various um, uh, discipline-based, STEM discipline-based groups that are concerned about some of the data I've produced, and governments are concerned about it. I don't think there's any doubt about that, and, and I'm sure that people in this room are actively involved in the debate around the future of the Australian curriculum. I should also note that we have our first Canadian Vice-Chancellor in Australia, Deep Sani, who has just begun at the University of Canberra and came from the University of Toronto. So we are seeing more Canadians. Good morning, Barney. Peter Buxkin here. Thanks for the um, rec day, recognition this morning. I've just completed, as you're aware, a, a $7.5 million project uh, working pretty, pretty closely with the deans of education. And one of the things we've we're really concerned about is the lack of Aboriginal people employed in the, in, across the university in terms of academics. 
um, but in particularly in the schools of education. We also um, have acknowledged um, that there's one third of our universities doing okay in this space, one third kind of travelling okay but need a little bit more, and there's one third that need a real shove in terms of the work that they might do in terms of the, the Indigenous curriculum, initial teacher education, in terms of postgraduate work that needs to be done with all teachers around the new national standards and the, um, um, the national curriculum. But in particular, we're concerned about the lack of investment and that uh, from universities into supporting the councils of the deans to do the job they need to do. Can you um, give us some advice on what you think you know, vice-chancellors should be doing to ensure that, um, that, that schools of education and faculties can have the resources, can get the resources required to increase this workforce? There's only about 20 Indigenous um, academics across the 37 or so universities. That's a national disgrace, I've got to say, because it's not the first time that we've raised this as Aboriginal people working um, within the education um, system. So um, you have a piece of work. We've worked with government, we've worked with the community and we've worked with the, with the sector and with systems. But universities need to produce the quality teaching force and we just, we just think that deans have a challenge before them but they also require to work in partnerships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and they can't do that if you've got one or two Aboriginal people in those schools of education so I seek your support in terms of how we can push that agenda with the government and indeed within the, our higher education sector. Thanks, Peter. Um, first of all, I, I, I do acknowledge that uh, Universities Australia is working closely with NATSIAC at the moment on our uh, Indigenous higher education strategy, which we hope to take, I think, Mike, to the plenary in November. Um, and that will be, I hope, certainly from the conversations we're having in the sector, a significant um, a significant review and change to the existing higher education, uh, Indigenous higher education policy that UA has been supporting and also building on our cultural competency work. So, Peter, I think there's an immediate opportunity here for Vice-Chancellors, um, both in the November plenary and then as we endorse the new, policy, uh, the, new, um, uh, the new policy statement that we do embed within it some targets that are, that are more um, challenging targets than we've had before for the sector for the next few years to address in part what you're, uh, that you're alluding to, uh, the parlous state of um, uh, Indigenous academic numbers in, in not just in education faculties around the country. So there is a section of that um, policy that will speak to the issue of how we can build the um, Indigenous Academy uh, within Australia's universities and every dean in this room I know is aware of the challenges of doing that. But I just want to, to, to make one other comment. I don't... I'd be surprised if there were too many deans in this room that um, weren't going through some fairly challenging planning for 2017 and beyond. Uh, I know we are for education as we look at uh, prospective student numbers. New South Wales, we're seeing a 4% decline in the, the total uh, uh, UAC uh, preference pool. So we're seeing a much more competitive sector. We have fewer students and we have the pressures on teacher education that you're all experiencing. And we're driven by a particular set of policy drivers in this country which have been under review now for several years and we remain in a situation where policy reform nationally is highly unlikely unless uh, the government can negotiate something with what is a very challenging Senate. So we are in a very difficult period to introduce major reform in the sector 
and to invest in our future. And it's one of those points we've been making repeatedly to the government, and uh, certainly they are keen on reform. I'm sure that the opposition, they brought a very detailed policy to the last uh, federal election, the most detailed higher education policy by, by an opposition we've ever seen. And they certainly saw the need to reinvest in higher education and to give us certainty over time so that we can address some of the issues, Peter, you're referring to. So I do think that uh, part of our challenge is this period that will probably extend, I think, through this parliament and the one we've just been through. We'll end up with a period of five or six years and possibly longer where we've been in a policy, uh, a very challenging policy environment. So that's impacting on the capacity of institutions to invest. The, the pressure, downward pressure on student numbers creates that same challenge. But notwithstanding those, I think UA will bring out a new Indigenous higher education policy that will address uh, the issues you're raising and it's up to universities then and vice-chancellors to respond to it. Um, if I could just say one more thing about um, how we can learn from each other. Um, as a finishing comment, I had uh, the wonderful opportunity when I was at, uh, Vice-Chancellor at CDU to attend Gama festivals in uh, East Arnhem Land. And uh, one of the most impressive, we had an open forum at Gama festivals. If you haven't been to one, you should consider going. Uh, but there was an open forum that CDU would support every year at Gama where we'd have presentations on various topics. And the Bachelor Institute of Indigenous Tertiary Education, which is a great Australian institute in always in troubled times because of the nature of, of support for Indigenous education in remote Australia. But uh, a group of academics and, uh, and students from uh, Bachelor gave a presentation about uh, mathematics education in remote schools in the Northern Territory and some of the innovations they were bringing in to the teaching of mathematics in an Indigenous context. And it was truly remarkable. And uh, it's something I repeat often to maths educators to say, you need to learn from this. There are some quite wonderful examples of quite sophisticated discrete mathematics that get played out in the, the nature of um, our remote communities. And if we capture those in our cur curriculum, we'll only be the richer for it. Thank you very much for listening to me. Appreciate it.